Thank you so much for listening to today's podcast of the teaching at Life Journey Church in Crozet, Virginia. We believe that the gospel really is good news, that the blood of Jesus worked, and that Jesus meant it when he said, it is finished. In Christ, we are dead to sin and alive to God, forgiven and free, clean and close, holy and beloved, blessed and made new. If God is doing something special in your life, we would love for you to tell us about it. You can simply email us at info at lifejourneyva.com. One of the reasons we are able to provide these weekly podcasts is because of the generosity of people like you. If you would like to support the proclamation of the gospel of the grace of God, you can make a donation now on our website, lifejourneyva.com. We're continuing um, our our journey uh, through this little series that we've entitled, Does Conduct Count? And if you've been at the beach for a couple weeks, you might be coming in towards the end of this, Um, but... uh, but we're glad that you're back, Lou and Maggie, uh, all tan and beautified. Um, but we, and, and, and yes, we are jealous, uh, just to be very clear on that. Uh, but but if, you, if you missed some of the, the first couple of messages, I encourage you to go to the podcast. That's what's there for, uh, so you can um, catch up. But, but basically, we're asking this question of, well, does conduct count? Does it matter how we live? We've got this cool little graphic up on the screen as soon as we get to it. But it, it, the question is, okay... If we're saved by grace, if we're saved through faith, um, and it's all the work of God, then, well, does it matter how we live? Does it matter what we do with our life? Does it matter how we, if we behave or not? And if you're newer to, you know, life journey, you might think, what an absurd question. We're talking about Christianity here, which is all about, you know, finding rules in the Bible and doing our best to live by them. Well, what if Christianity is a whole lot more than that? What if it's not just about morality and ethics? What if, it's, what if it's actually about death, burial, and resurrection and a whole new creation that you now are? And so we've had this launching pad verse uh, from Ephesians chapter 2, and we've looked at this you know, every week, and it's going to be on the screen now. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not of yourself. I mean, he's very clear that this is not your doing, your salvation. It is the gift of God not a result of works, least any man should boast. You know, I think it's so funny, David. The Lord knows that w- what we would do if we could do, earn our salvation or earn our sanctification, earn our, you know, closeness with God. He knows what we would do. We'd, we'd boast about it. We'd be like, you know, hey, I, I, I'm, I'm on a scale of one to ten. Jim, I, I, I'm a nine, you know. I, <laughs> let's be honest. I think you're just a five. Right? We, we would do that, and we see that all the time when we think that our intimacy and our closeness, our union with the God of the universe is managed by our behavior. But the truth of the matter is, well, it's by grace. And this salvation isn't just our, we, we like to, in, in, in theology, break this down into, okay, we got the justification, but now we've got this lifelong, you know, sanctification of doing our best to become more and more holy. No, it is all by grace. Everything we have from the Lord is by grace through faith. And if that's the case, then I think the, a good, reasonable question is, well, then does it matter how I live? I remember Adam being in community group, man, what, years ago, and we were talking about this, and, and Adam and, every, and others in the community group said, well, if this is the case, then, then isn't this just a get-out-of-jail-free card, and we can go do whatever we want? And that's a perfect response because it means that you're hearing, I think, what the gospel is actually saying. And so what we're 
we've been doing the last couple of weeks is, is really examining, well, does it matter how we live? There's another passage of Scripture that I want to kind of throw out to you to kind of, you know, really dr- uh, drive home this, this issue of, you know, is God counting our sins? In the new covenant, is God counting our sins against us? Because it, like Craig said earlier, I, I fit in that category. Uh, up until the age of 31, I would say, well, of course he's counting sins. Well, don't ever take my word for any of this, guys. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19. God, the Father, was in Christ, God the Son, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their transgressions against them. 2 Corinthians 5, 19. So according to the Holy Spirit who inspired the Apostle Paul to write this letter called 2 Corinthians, how many of our sins now in the new covenant is God counting against us? Somebody say zip. Somebody say zero, zilch, nada, nothing, whatever other languages you speak, right? So do you see how this prompts the question, okay, well, wait a second. If that's true, if he's not counting my sins against me anymore because I'm now in Christ, because I'm now reconciled to him, if he's not counting my sins against me anymore, well, does it then matter how I live? You see how that question should come up? I think it should come up, and I think we should answer it. But the problem is, in so many Christian circles, this question never comes up because we don't proclaim the same gospel that the apostles proclaimed. I didn't, at least, for the first 31 years of my life. But as we proclaim the same gospel the apostles proclaimed, questions like this come up. Well, well, now, wait a second. If that's true, if he's not counting my sins against me, then what sort of recompense, what sort of, you know, leverage does God have to make sure that I live a a good life, fly straight, etc.? So three weeks ago, we started this series and the first week, we talked about how God's not dumb. And he's not dumb. He doesn't just forgive sinners. If you just forgive a sinner, then, well, the sinner's just going to continue wanting to sin. What he did is he actually crucified sinner, and he raised sinner as saint. You get this? I have been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live, I don't live by, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So we saw that two weeks, uh, three weeks ago, that it's not, it's not just that he forgave us. Oh, he did forgive us, as we just sang in the song. Oh, absolutely, 100% every last sin has been forgiven. But it's not just that he forgave you. He actually cut out the old desires and gave you new desires. Now, we, there are still sinful desires that have hijacked our mind from the real entity called sin that lives in our mortal flesh, Paul talks about. But we have to see that we died and we were given a whole new heart. Heart speaks of desires. Two weeks ago, um, we, we saw how, how we are actually created new as the very workmanship of God. You know, I've read that verse, Ephesians 2.10, you know, my whole life, Lou, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, you know, blah, blah, blah. I've read them a whole lot. But it's really only been recently when it's just, you know, made such amazing sense in the context of what Paul's been teaching. You know, I've never seen it with my own eyes, just pictures, but has anybody seen uh, uh, Michelangelo's David? Anybody with your own eyes? 
You have? Okay, you guys have? Okay, I've only seen pictures. And I imagine seeing it in real life is just even more amazing. I mean, the workmanship, right, of, of, of a man. To, and, and, I, and I think, if I'm not mistaken, you know, they, 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 when a sculpture, sculptor, you know, talks about how, you know, answers the question, how in the world did you do that? How did you create that? The answer a lot of times is, well, I just removed all of the rock that didn't look like that. I'm like, well, okay, that didn't help me out much. But imagine the, the handiwork of Michelangelo to create David. Imagine... You know, the, 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 flaw, you know, the flawless nature of that sculpture. And we marvel, don't we? We say, wow, how could somebody create that? Well, let's just realize that you, your new life in Christ, listen, you are now, check this out, the workmanship of God. So if we get all, you know, amazed at Michelangelo's David at the handiwork of Michelangelo. Just imagine what you truly are now because you are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus for good works. Wow. Last week, we saw how it's actually Philippians chapter 2. It's actually God who is at work in us both to desire, to will, and to do the work according to his good pleasure. He says, work out your salvation with no confidence in your flesh, fear and trembling, no confidence in your flesh, for it is God who is at work in you. So we've been asking this question, does conduct count? Well, it, it, it counts so much so that he crucified sinner, the old man, and he raised the new man that's righteous and holy. It, it matters so much that we're actually his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, and it matters so much that God actually lives in us both to desire good and to do good through us. So I'd say, yeah, it matters a lot, but it might be counting, our conduct might be counting in ways that we might not really have considered before. A lot of times in the past, at least, you know, I think my conduct counts for, you know, my fellowship with the Lord, my, my rank, my, 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 uh, my status, you know, with God. But in reality, when the life of Christ that's in us begins to manifest itself through us as we depend more and more upon the Lord, what really is happening is God himself, through this new creation, is living through us, not empowered by our flesh, but empowered by the very same power that raised Christ from the dead. And I don't know about you, man, but I want me some of that, right? I've tried to manage this sin and modify this behavior by the power of my flesh. I've tried that, and I got news for you. If you're still trying it, it don't work. God's way is better. So today, we're going to continue talking about does conduct count? What's this whole behavior thing all about? If it's all by grace, what does this behavior thing look like? And we're going to begin looking at the process that we play, the part we play in this process of Christ being manifested through us instead of that old parasite of sin being manifest through us. Again, I don't know about you, but I know what that looks like. I know what sin being manifested through this body looks like. But I want the very one who loves me, who has created me as his handiwork, the one who has created me new and holy and righteous, I want who I truly am to start living and continue living through me. Why do I want that so much? Why do you want that so much? It's because God gave you those desires. It's because he wants it for you. 
and he's done the work to make it happen. If you're with me, say I'm with you. Okay, we've got a couple that are with me. All right, good. Well, if you're not, jump on, because here we go. We're going to rewind from 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And we're going to look at some competing methods for how godliness is lived out in the Christian life. We've looked at this passage before, back I think it was in like uh, uh, August or September. We've looked at it before, but we're going to look at it in a slightly different context today from this perspective of, you know, these competing views, these competing arguments, these competing philosophies for how godliness is lived out of us, okay? So we're going to pick up in verse uh, 4 of 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul writes, such confidence we have through Christ toward God, that, that, uh, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, for our adequacy is from God. Real quick, if you were with us last week, this is the very same thing he says in, in, in Philippians chapter 2 that we looked at last week. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. This is not of you. This is not, you know, no confidence in your flesh, for it is God that is working. It's God working through you. So he's saying our adequacy to do this, to live the Christian life, it doesn't come from our flesh. It doesn't come from our empowerment. It comes from God himself. Now look at this, verse 6. God, who made us adequate as ministers or servants, of a what? Okay, we can, we, can, we can maybe try that again all together. Uh, that was like a C, right? You know, C plus. We're, 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 we're gracious here. Um, who made us adequate as servants of a, of a new covenant, all right? Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So the new covenant apparently is not just for Israel. I was walking out of message last week or week before, and I asked Jim, I was like, man, what do people do with these passages in, in Jeremiah, you know, different ones that talk about the new covenant coming? And, and Jim said, well, a lot of people think that's just for Israel, that this new covenant is just for Israel, and it's yet future. Well, who, who in the world is Paul writing here to? Is he writing to the Jews or Gentiles in Corinth? Gentiles. These aren't Jews. And he's telling these Gentiles that they are ministers, they're servants of a new covenant. So apparently, the new covenant isn't just for Israel, physical Israel, but apparently it's for the entire world. I was uh, listening to the radio uh, a couple days ago, and, and, and I'm not going to say who, you know, I know a lot of you listen to the, the, this. Uh, you know, it's good to go to conservative talk radio to get some politics stuff, but once they start talking about, you know, biblical covenants. Maybe it's not the best source, right? Um, but I think Thursday or Friday, I was listening to the radio, and one of the hosts had a guy on, and, and they were talking about, they were debating about whether or not America had broken its covenant with God. And, and the first thing that perked my mind was like, wait a second, I didn't know America had a covenant with God. And they started talking about George Washington and some sort of speech where George Washington said, we will be your people, you will be our God, all this sort of stuff, quoting, you know, Moses, I guess, you know. And so I didn't even know about, about any of that. But Anyways, the whole point was, because of this whole transgender bathrooms, this was the final straw that's broken the camel's back to where we finally have broken our covenant with God because of our behavior. And I'm just like, okay, you know, now, the whole transgender issue, I mean, that's just, you know, a whole can of worms in and of itself that's, you know, just messy and, you know, but I'm just like, really, that's the straw, you know? 
I mean, we've been killing babies in the womb for how many years now? Millions of them now? I mean, now all of a sudden there's a straw? But the problem is seeing, or, 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 or the ignorance, if I may say, of what this covenant that we have with the Lord really is. You see, they were taking the old covenant and saying that J- George Washington cre- you know, uh, copied and pasted that to America so that America is now the new Israel or something. Whereas the truth of the matter is there's a whole new covenant that we're a part of. And, and if, you, if we don't see anything this morning, please see this. If you don't know what covenant you're in with God, then you're not going to know how Christ in us lives out through us. And this is the whole point of what Paul's about to unwrap here. He says, we are made adequate, we are made servants, we're made ministers of a new covenant, not the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So there's these two covenants, one that's of letter, one that's of spirit. A a quick background uh, of 2 Corinthians. What's happened in 2 Corinthians as uh, like many of the churches Paul started, Paul arrives, he proclaims the good news of Jesus that whoever believes Jesus would be rescued from the domain of darkness and be transferred to the kingdom of the beloved son. No catches, you're right, no, no exceptions, no bait and switch, nothing. Faith in Jesus plus nothing else. But the problem is that there was a, a large group of religious Jews, some of them even were Christians, but they were religious Jews who had a problem with that. You know, they, they didn't object all that much to the fact of adding Jesus into the mix. Now, some of them did for sure, but, but they didn't have an objection so much of adding Jesus into the mix, but they wanted to add Jesus to their already uh, existing religion of Judaism. It's kind of like when we go to, I've never been to India, but I have some friends who have been to India, and they'll set up a little, you know, uh, sound system, and they'll start talking about Jesus. And I mean, thousands of people, anybody been to India? Um, thousands of people just, you know, just migrate to the speaker, and they hear the message of Jesus. They raise their hand, they say they want Jesus, and it's like, man, 17,000 people just, you know, became Christians. And if that's the case, fabulous hallelujah. But one of my friends said, you know, I wonder if all they're doing is just adding Jesus to the millions of gods that they already have. If you're familiar with uh, Hinduism, it's just a, like, it, it, you name it and there's a God for it. And so a lot of the Judaizers, the, the, the ones who are trying to balance Jesus and Moses, they were just trying to add Jesus into their religion of Judaism. And so when Paul would say it's just Jesus and Jesus alone, these Judaizers would come around behind Paul and say, you know, it's not just Jesus, it's actually Jesus plus you've got to now become a Jew. That's why they're called Judaizers. So these Judaizers, these religious Jews, they followed behind Paul nearly everywhere Paul went to bring, bring Judaism to, to, to Gentile Christians. Well, what is the paramount thing of Judaism? What's the paramount uh, uh, content of Judaism, the Mosaic what? Law. 613 regulations of rules of how to manage sins and modify behaviors. And so now, the thinking of these Judaizers, it seemed logical. They were thinking, okay, these Gentiles, they recently are, are these converted immoral pagans, and they need laws, they need rules, they need order in order to curb their sinful passions. And so now, as a result of Judaism coming into the Christians and these things called Judaizers, you now have Christians, you have Gentile Christians who who were never, by the way, even invited to the Mosaic Law. They were never invited. We as Gentiles were never invited to the Old Covenant. 
you now have Christian Gentiles who are now worried about what meats to eat. You read that in the Corinthian letters. They're worried about whether or not to be circumcised. You read that in the Galatian letters. You, you, you read in the Colossian letters that they're worried about what days to celebrate, what weeks to celebrate, what months to celebrate, what seasons and festivals to celebrate. All of these things that were a part of the Jude, Jewish religion. And they were being added to Jesus in the minds and hearts of these Gentiles. And so here in the middle of 2 Corinthians chapter 2, we pick up on this exchange going back and forth between the Apostle Paul and the church that he started in Corinth. And the issue is how are we transformed outwardly into good behavior? How does this happen? Because the Judaizers have come to town saying it's by following Moses, but Paul, you never told us about Moses, so which is it? And the first thing that Paul explains to them there in verse uh, 6 is that you've got to know which covenant you're in. You've got to know which covenant you're in. Are you in the new covenant or the old? Look, the old covenant was great, but it was not for the Gentiles. And controversially enough, now that Jesus had come, the old covenant wasn't even for the Jews anymore. We read that in the book of Galatians. That now that the seed had come, Jesus, the the old covenant had passed away. The law of Moses had become null and void. And so Paul starts comparing the purpose of the old covenant to the purpose of the new covenant. He says that the letter, what? Kills. But the Spirit gives what? Life. So what is this letter he's talking about? The letter. What is the letter of the old covenant that Paul's talking about. Anybody? The law. The law. Exactly right. Now he says that the Spirit gives life. Well, what's the Spirit he's talking about? Spirit of, Spirit of God. And in fact, in verse 17, we'll see in a little bit even more specifically who the Spirit is. Let's keep reading a little bit because he's comparing these. He's saying, you're in the new covenant and you're being duped into thinking that righteousness comes by obeying the old covenant. Well, let's look in, let's compare these two covenants a little bit, he says. Verse 7, but if the ministry of death engraved uh, in, in letters engraved on stones came with glory so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face, fading as it was, how will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory? And so what what Paul is saying is there's something in the old covenant that actually serves death. The word ministry, it means serve. If you're a minister, that means you're serving people, right? The minister of defense, they're serving defense for the nation. You know, the minister of the interior, they're serving the interior. That's the whole idea of the word ministry. Ministry means service. So apparently there's something in the old covenant that serves death. There's something that was engraved on stones that serves death in the old covenant. Now look, I'm not going to say what this is. I want you to tell me what this is. I ain't going to get in trouble for this. You tell me, what was the only part of the Mosaic law that was actually engraved on stones? Say a little bit louder. The Ten Commandments. Now watch out. Why don't you go messing with my Ten Commandments, Paul? Paul is saying that the Ten Commandments, which is the only part of the Mosaic law engraved on stones, actually served death. Now how does Paul get off saying that? 
Well, what is the consequence of violating one of the Ten Commandments under the Old Covenant? Death. That's how he gets off by saying that. You violate one of the Ten Commandments under the Old Covenant, the consequence is death. Do I need to remind us of what happened the very day that Paul, uh, Paul, uh, Moses brought the Ten Commandments down Mount Sinai? The people of Israel had already created a, a golden what? Golden calf. And they said that this golden calf was what actually brought us out of Egypt. They were already violating like half of the Ten Commandments. And Moses said, all right, you future priests of Israel, strap a sword to your thigh and go through and slaughter every single person who had anything to do with this. And on the ver- this is the first Pentecost of the Old Covenant. On the first Pentecost of the Old Covenant, do you know how many Jews died that day because of being a participant of violating the Ten Commandments? 3,000. 3,000 died that day. Folk, listen. Under the Old Covenant, the letter engraved on stones kills. The Ten Commandments. See how silent it is right now, Jim? The Ten Commandments come with weight. And that's what the word glory, maybe you've heard the term, the Hebrew word Shekinah. You've heard that term before maybe. It means weight. It means substance. The Ten Commandments, the whole Mosaic Law, but he's talking specifically about the Ten Commandments, came with weight. You see how much weight they came with? You violate it? He says it came with glory. So much glory that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because his face, the actual face of Moses from carrying these stones actually began to glow. Imagine that. But what was his face doing? It started glowing, but then it was fading. His face began to fade, symbolizing the fact that the glory of the Ten Commandments was fading. It was temporary. It was not eternal. So his whole point is, guys, imagine, do you realize how glorious the Ten Commandments actually were? They were so glorious, and they were just laws written on stone. His point is, imagine just how more glorious the eternal reality of the very Spirit of God actually is. He's not saying the Ten Commandments are bad. In fact, the Ten Commandments... I'm going to say this a little bit. I'm saying it before I should, but the Ten Commandments aren't bad. In fact, they're so good that if you violate one, you're toast. <laughs> Nothing wrong with the law. But it was given to reveal to us that we can never be compatible with God on our own. The letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Doug, you said that 3,000 were killed that first Pentecost of the Old Covenant. Does anybody remember just a trivia question here this morning? When the Spirit of God was given in Acts chapter 2 on the first Pentecost of the new covenant, does anybody happen to remember how many law-breaking Jews were saved that day? 3,000. I don't know about you. Maybe that's just coincidence. I don't know. But the letter kills. The Spirit gives life. Did those Jews in Acts chapter 2, did they do anything to, 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 to earn and merit life? No. They were the recipients of God's grace under a new 
covenant. The old covenant is gone. For, verse 9, for if the ministry, the service of condemnation has glory. So now he's up and he says, it's not just death, but it's actually a ministry of condemnation. If it had glory, and it did, much more, I hear that, amen. Much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. Okay, he's saying the same, he's saying the same thing over and over. For indeed, verse 10, what had glory, the Ten Commandments, in this case has no glory because of the glory that surpasses it. For that which fades away was with glory, much more that which remains is in glory. So Paul is now calling the Ten Commandments the ministry of condemnation. It's like, come on, Paul. Don't you know that you're going to get beat up by saying this stuff? Well, yeah. He didn't. In fact, later in 2 Corinthians, he talks about all the times he got beat up for saying this stuff. But what, what is, how does Paul get off calling the Ten Commandments in the Old Covenant the ministry of condemnation? Well, if you violate one of the Ten Commandments, what are you? Condemned. I mean, he's just stating the obvious. He's just stating the obvious. Paul agrees that the law, the Ten Commandments, the the stone tablets, he agrees that they came with glory. But again, he's saying, imagine if that came with glory, fading as it was, temporary as it was, if the very things that served death and served condemnation had glory, how much more glorious is that which serves life and righteousness? Do you see what he's saying here? Do you see how he's revealing the great glory, the surpassing glory of the Christ over the law? The core of Judaism, these Ten Commandments, they had glory, but it was fading now. And it had faded in comparison to Christ. The Ten Commandments in comparison to Christ have no glory. The glory of the Ten Commandments had faded, just as Moses' face had faded, but the glory of the Christ remains forever. Now, I already said that. I skipped ahead on this. I'm going to say it again just for emphasis' sake. Does this mean that the Ten Commandments are evil? No. No, it means that the Ten Commandments, along with the rest of the law, had a purpose. And the purpose was to serve death and condemnation. They revealed the great inability of humanity to ever be compatible with the holy God. They were not evil at all. In fact, as I already said it, I already got to the punchline. Sorry, I'm going to say it again. You're never supposed to say two punchlines in the same message. Sorry about this. But they were so, it was so holy, it was so good that to violate it, you were toast. So there's nothing wrong with the law. It had a purpose. But the reign of the law the reign of, of death and condemnation was only for a period. From when God gave it to Moses until the Christ came. They were given at Mount Sinai, and they ended the day that God ushered in the new covenant at the death of his son, Jesus Christ. Verse 12. So, therefore, having such a hope... Huh, I say this is an understatement of a lifetime. We use boldness in our speech. He just called the Ten Commandments the ministry of death and condemnation that kills. I say that's pretty bold in your speech, wouldn't you say? We use such boldness in our speech, and we are not like Moses. Okay, now what's, what's this all about? 
Now he's now he's dogging Moses. I mean, Moses is like the pinnacle of Judaism. What? Come on, Paul, you're, you're not making friends and influencing people. We are not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of what was fading away. Real quick, I don't have time to get into this, but just as the law was fading, the very glory, the brightness of Moses' face was fading. And Moses didn't want the people to see that. He didn't want them to see the end of the glory of the law. And so he covered his face with a veil. So I see if Jim has a bright, shining face on Monday and he covers his face, and I see him on Friday, in reality, he still has the veil on. So I think it's still bright and shiny. But on Friday, it's a lot less shiny. But I don't know that because there's a veil covering Jim's face. That's what was happening. Moses had walked around with a veil over his face so that they wouldn't see the fact that the law was ending, had an end date. It had a sunset clause. But their minds were hardened, verse 14, for until this very day. Now, he's writing this in 2 Corinthians. Where's Ricky? Is Ricky back yet? He had to run an errand. I don't know when 2 Corinthians was written. Uh, anybody? I don't know. It was in the 60s, I'd say, somewhere in along the, that range. So in the 60s, um, maybe 70s, but probably the 60s. No, it couldn't be the 70s. So at least in the 60s sometimes. Um, until that day, so 30 years or so after Christ had died, until that very day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil, the same covering remains unlifted. And what Paul is saying is that that same blindness to the true ending of the law remains. They don't see what actually has happened of this law, that it's actually ended because of a new covenant, because they continue going back to it to trying to learn how to live. For it is only removed in Christ. So I'd say Paul is, yeah, speaking with some great boldness in his speech. I mean, he's calling the Ten Commandments, you know, the very thing that the entire religion of Judaism is founded on. He's calling it the ministry of death and condemnation and now has no glory whatsoever because of the far surpassing glory of Christ. Yeah, I say that's pretty bold, Paul. And I think, church, we ought to be equally bold. And we will probably face equal persecution amongst equally religious people. But what are we going to do? Try to mix the covenants? Try to say, hey, you've got everything you need in Christ, but you know what? We really ought to not go to Christ to learn how to live. We ought to run back to, you know, the stone tablets that have no glory whatsoever to learn how to live? No. We must be as bold as, Mo- as Paul was. Moses put a veil over his face to hide the fact that the glory of the Ten Commandments was fading. And whenever we, even today, 2,000 years later, whenever we look to the law, to the Ten Commandments as a way of curbing sin, as a way of living the life of Christ in this world, that same veil remains over our minds. But it's even worse than that. Look at verse, what are we next at, 15? It's not just a veil that remains over the mind. Look at verse 15. But, but to this day, again, he's emphasizing this again. I mean, when, you know, 
parchment, whatever they wrote on, sometimes it's parchment, sometimes it's papyrus, is very expensive and hard to come by. And so whenever an apostle writes the same thing multiple times, it is for huge emphasis sake. They didn't have paper just laying around. This is very costly. Maybe the vellum, whatever they used to write on, is very costly. So when he writes the same thing several times, we've got to put our little antennas up and say, wow, this is huge, hugely emphasized by the apostle. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over the what now? Not this the mind, but over the what? The heart. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit. So Jesus is the Spirit that he's talking about. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Man, what, what contrast. You've got veils and, and bondage and blindness versus freedom and joy and sight. I hear Paul saying that, that even though in reality the old covenant had ended because of Jesus, even though, remember Hebrews, we walked through Hebrews as a church, it was, the old covenant was weak and useless at actually making us okay with God. Even though it's ended, if we don't see that it's ended, and if we look back to the, the, to the Ten Commandments, if we look back to Moses for our guidance on how to live, how to improve our behavior, how to fill in the blank, then the very veil that covered Moses' face to blind the people from the true intent of the law, that very veil, he says, remains over the heart. Now, we're going to take a minute and talk about this a little bit. Why does a veil, a covering, remain over someone's heart when they look to rules, regulations, specifically, I mean, Paul's talking about the Ten Commandments here. Why does a veil remain over our heart when we look to the Ten Commandments to learn how to live? Why? Well, let's, take a, let's, 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 let's uh, approach this in two different ways. Let's first talk about an unbeliever, Okay. Think about an unbeliever. What's the true condition, according to the Scripture, of an unbeliever's heart? Anybody? Dead? Right? We don't have to guess. I mean, the Scripture says, Jeremiah 17, 9, says that the heart is deceitful, desperately sick. Who can know it? That word deceitful, the Hebrew word is Jacob. We got the English name Jacob from that. Anybody go back to Jacob and Esau? Remember Jacob was named Jacob because he was pulling the leg of his brother when they came out of the womb, and then when he deceived Esau two times, Esau said, you know, you're, you're rightly named because <laughs> his name means deceiver. Jacob is the nature of the old heart, the unregenerate heart. So why is how can an unbeliever who's looking to the Ten Commandments as the way to live, how can that actually create a veil over the true nature of their heart? Well, I think, I'll just throw this out to you. I'm sure there's other ideas. But I think it's because you can look at the list of things to do, the Ten, and look at them and say, you know what? If I give it my best shot, if I really double down, 
if I really get my act together, I might be able to pull off those, maybe nine out of ten. You see our image there in the background is the scales. You know, as long as it kind of tips, you know, six out of ten, I'm good. The veil remains over the heart, the true condition of the heart. When we look at the law, a lot of times as an unbeliever, because we think if I can just live a moral life, if I just live an ethical life, if I just live a good life, then then I'm going to be okay. Listen, this is the whole issue, if you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, of a whole group of people called the Pharisees. They looked at the law and said, you know what? We're going to do enough to score a passing grade on this. And Jesus called them what? hypocrites, brood of vipers, blind guides, all all this sort of stuff. In fact, Jesus' whole sermon, read it, Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, is to show that no matter how hard you try to keep the law, you're never going to keep it. You think you're okay because you've never committed adultery? Well, Jesus said, if you've lusted in your heart, you're guilty. So so how's that heart now? You You see what he's saying? So a veil can remain over the true condition of an unbeliever's heart when we try to live by ethical principles, even from the Ten Commandments, like the Pharisees. Well, think about a believer for a second. How could a veil, a covering, how could a covering lie over the heart of a believer if we as believers look to rules, regulations, even the Ten Commandments, as Paul's been talking about, as a way to live, as a way to curb sinning, as a way to live the Christian life? Well, let's ask the same question. What's the nature, what's the true nature of the believer's heart? Answer that. What is the nature of the believer's heart according to Scripture? Life, alive? Perfect? What else? Righteous? Holy? And before we think that we did that, remember, this is all by grace. It's a gift. Just don't shy away. I remember asking a 62-year-old pastor the other day, uh, a couple months ago, I said, you know, do you really believe that you've been made new, holy, righteous, and redeemed? He said, ah, let's don't go that far. I'm like, are you serious? It's the gospel. Let's don't, let's don't say, you know, Jesus, let's just don't go too crazy here with what you've done with me. Um, blameless, Ephesians 5, spotless, without wrinkle, undefiled. How about born of God? Now, this is crazy. We looked at this verse a couple weeks ago. 1 John chapter 5 says that that which is born of God does not what? Sin. When sin happens, and sin happens, it doesn't come from your new heart. It comes from sin that lives in your sinful members, but doesn't come from your new heart. Now, look at this. And I've got this, you know, see this? So I'm going to read this because I think it's that important, okay? Now, look at this. When we as believers look to Moses, when we look to rules, when we look to regulations, when we look specifically here to the Ten Commandments, a veil lies over our heart. We're blinded to who we truly are because we are distracted by thoughts of what we need to do. And so instead of living from our new heart that is joined to Jesus, that is righteous and holy in every way, completely compatible with him, to a glory that never fades, and when we turn from him and we start living by a gloryless stone tablets that serve death and and condemnation, 
we miss the whole joy of the Christian life. Instead of living from the overflowing spring of life within us that has a glory that never fails and fades, we try to live up to commandments that were put into place to show us our great need for overflowing life. Do you see how living by Moses actually can put a veil over the heart of even a believer? Because we're not seeing who we truly are. Sounds like Paul is very adamant about not living from these stone tablets, but rather living from the Christ who's in them. But what about sinning? I mean, how will we not sin if we don't try to live up to the Ten Commandments? And this is the last verse, and we'll pack up for the morning. Verse 18. But we all, with unveiled face, I love that, no hiding this thing, we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into that same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit, or other translations might say, and all of this is from the Lord. So what causes this veil over our minds or over our hearts? What causes the veil is looking to Moses and the Ten Commandments for how to live. So an unveiled face is one where we're not looking to the old covenant of death and of condemnation. So what are we looking towards? He says we're looking in a mirror. Now, I'm not the smartest guy in the world, Jeff. It's No amens, Bob, all right? But what do you see? What is looking, what is staring back at you when you look in a mirror? Say it. You. 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 And Paul is saying, listen, guys, this isn't about living up to stone tablets, looking to stones. It's looking at a mirror and seeing the truth of what really has happened to you with an unveiled face when we can see beyond the reality of this world and see what lies just below the flesh, a brand new heart, a brand new life, a brand new creation that is created in the very image of God in true holiness and true righteousness. If we can see beyond the veil to who we truly are, guess what? We will be progressively being, passive tense, transformed into outwardly that same image of what we already are inward. You see the difference? The difference is you see who you are and then you actually live as you are. As opposed to the old covenant, you just try your best to do something that's not natural to you, it's not normal to you, it is foreign to you, but if you have enough willpower, uh, enough spunk, you can maybe pull it off. That's religion. But Paul has come revealing something directly from the Lord that is not the old covenant. It's the new covenant. When you look in a mirror, you're looking at yourself. But you see, this teaching of Paul, it makes no sense if you don't see yourself as having died. You see, if you look in a mirror and you see a dirty, rotten sinner, then this isn't going to make any sense to you. 
You have to see that you died. That's why we started week one with I've been crucified with Christ. You have to see that you died. You have to see that you are a born-again new creation. You have to see that you are the very workmanship of God created in Christ Jesus for good works. If you look in a mirror and you see who you really are and you see that there's something wrong with who you really are, this doesn't make any sense. But the truth is there's nothing wrong with who you, the new creation, really is. We must believe the gospel that he's made us new. And as we press into it, as we believe who we really are, then the reality of our new life in Christ begins to manifest through us into this world. So what's our job? What's our role in this whole thing of being transformed into the same image? It is looking at a mirror and believing that something radical, something glorious, something far surpassingly glorious than the Ten Commandments actually resides within me. It's the union of my new heart and my new nature and the very life and nature of God himself fused together in perfect, absolute compatibility forever. If we don't see that, then it's just going to be trying our best to do our best to try to live up to certain man-made expectations. But what if we never really believe that we're holy? we never really believe we're righteous, we never really believe we're redeemed, that we're spotless, that we're blameless. And remember, guys, look, it's all by grace. This is not anything that you could ever do. It is his gift of life for you. If we don't believe what the gospel is actually saying, then we'll continue to look at Moses for learning and trying to live our best. But Paul is calling us to look somewhere to know how to live. He's calling us to look at who we truly are now in Christ. The very eternal glory of Christ, that's now our glory. You know what Jesus says in in John 17? He says, the very glory, he's talking to the Father, the glory you gave me, I have given to them. Is Jesus just, you know, know, saying things there? What do you think? I don't think he's just saying stuff. I think it's true, Brandon. The glory you gave me, I have given them. His righteousness is now our righteousness. His life is our life. And this is why the Christian life is not burdensome. It's not weary. It's not heavy laden. Godly living, please listen, is not us trying to do things that we don't want or that we don't have the capacity of doing. Godly living is us simply living as who we truly are now in Christ. The question is, do you see who you are? Do you see what he's made you? Do you see that you're a workman? Work, you are the workmanship of God. Do you see who you truly are? There's no effort in trying to be who you are. I mean, it's, it's who you are. The issue is, do you know who you are? Do you, do you know what he's made you? Do you believe what he's done? Do you see what God has done and continues to do in us so he can live through us? Our band's going to come up, and we're going to close out with a very appropriate song, but once and for all, where this has happened, it's, it's a done deal once and for all. And our journey marker this morning, if you're newer with us, we just try to put all this into a, a simple little thought that we can kind of take home with us, maybe think on it. It's just this, right believing, that's where it starts with, produces right thinking. Right thinking 
produces right living. See, it all starts with what do you believe? Do you believe that you died with Christ and that you've been raised new? If you don't believe that, then look, I mean, none of the rest of it's going to make any sense. Do you believe that you've been made new? Once we start believing that, then we can start thinking on that. Then we can start looking in a mirror and saying, you know what? You're not a dirty, rotten worm. You are a priceless, perfect, holy, righteous child of the living God. We can start thinking right because we're believing right. And then guess what happens? I mean, it's crazy, I know. But what happens as our minds are renewed to the truth of who we are, that we're righteous? Guess what naturally as a byproduct happens of our union with Christ? Righteous living. It's the most natural thing for a right one who believes they're righteous and thinks they're righteous and lives their right to, to then live righteously. It's natural. It's God's plan. It's not going to a, stones to learn how to live. It's looking at the Christ within us who has given us his glory and his majesty to now live in this world as we already are in his. Let's stand and close our eyes and prepare to sing. But as you close your eyes, I just, I just want to challenge you this morning to, as you close your eyes, imagine looking in a mirror, maybe your bathroom mirror, maybe it's one of those little handheld mirrors, I don't know, your rearview mirror in your car, wherever you put your lipstick on. Just look in that mirror right now and ask yourself, and I ask you, what do you see? Are you willing to believe the gospel that you are no longer, if you believe Jesus, that you are no longer a child of Adam, that you no longer by nature a children of, of wrath, a child of wrath, but you are now a new creation, holy and righteous in all ways. Are you willing to believe the gospel, what the scriptures reveal about who you are? Are you willing to believe the teachings of the apostles, the teaching of Jesus, who says, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. What do you see when you look in the mirror? See, I guarantee that the enemy seeks for you to see, for me to see something other than what we truly are. The enemy seeks for us to define who we are by what we do. And it's very He's very successful at that a lot of the times. But you are not, as the song says, you are not the sum total of your mistakes. You are a new creation. Right believing produces right thinking. So today when you go home and you look in that rearview mirror, you can think the thoughts of the Lord, of who you truly are. And as we develop a lifetime a lifestyle of right thinking because of right believing. Guess what happens? Right living. It's the cart that's pulled by the horse. The horse is Christ. Father, we thank you for this morning. And I don't know, I hope this makes some sense. It is certainly controversial to read Paul saying that the Ten Commandments are the ministry of death and condemnation because in our Judeo-Christian culture, we have combined Christ and the law. But we are no longer under law. We are under grace. Greater, greater, greater grace than all of our sin. 
Father, help us to see that it's not laws and rules and regulations that teach us how to live, but it's actually Christ, our union with Him, the growing revelation of You in us, the real reality, not just theologies and, and, and doctrines. I mean, those things are great, but it's a reality, Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you again for listening to today's podcast of the teaching at Life Journey Church in Crozet, Virginia. We'd love to hear from you. If God is doing something special in your life, let us know by sending an email to info at lifejourneyva.com. Feel free to pass today's teaching on to any friends and family that you'd like, but please don't change any of it or charge for it. This podcast is made available for free as a ministry of Life Journey Church. If you would like to support the proclamation of the gospel of the grace of God, you can make a donation now on our website, lifejourneyva.com. Have a great day.